Galatians chapter 5, the text that Roman read for us. Anytime that uh, we have a, a couple reading, I think it's always good that if the words, I hope that my enemies would emasculate themselves, is in the text, it's always nice for the guy to be reading that for us, I think. So, well done, well chosen there, Roman and Monica. Odd passage, isn't it? We've been making kind of a circuitous path to Galatians chapter 5, where we get our, uh, one of the more significant therefores of the book, right? And uh, if you remember a few weeks back, we took a big chunk of text together. We looked at three metaphors, right? Then when the kids were in, we spent a little bit of time um, loading Ryan up with, uh, with lots of burdens, as a picture of what it meant to be free of those burdens and not to be under a, a mentality in our relationship with God that would feel weighty. Um, there's a lot of metaphors that we've really been exploring. Last week, we dove into the middle of chapter four and we listened to Paul recount his history with these Galatians and try to make an appeal. We, we sort of learned from that motif and that, that perspective on how to share tough things with people that we love and who we think love us. Um, but, but here we are in chapter 5, but by way of context that I think at least gets us set for the words, for freedom, Christ set us free, let's remember that one of the metaphors that Paul has painted for the, the churches in Galatia is that of captivity. So in chapter 3, verse 23, he said, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Um, to back that up, he said, then we also, in chapter 4, verse 3, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. This has been one of the dominant motifs that Paul has been perplexed by and afraid for. The, the idea that people who believed a message of freedom would then either go back to a pagan or to a Jewish way of thinking. The Judaism is really the context for it. But what Paul has kind of done is to peel this back from just a Jewish problem. If you've ever taught, if you've ever played sports, you know that rules matter. Having a group of people that get together, planning Thanksgiving dinner, everything kind of needs some set of rules in order to make things right. But if you've ever led or organized, you know that just having rules doesn't actually make things fun, does it? Kids can obey rules and still be disruptive, which is one of the things that it took me a few years in teaching middle school to learn. We can do the right things when we get together for a family dinner, but things don't feel alive. Rules can be helpful, but if you depend on rules as the final kind of end of your existence together, especially as a group, you can find that the rules are actually a little bit more enslaving, especially if you go to the point of trying to ask the question, who keeps the rules best? Set up structures based on who keeps those rules best. That, Paul says, enslaves and imprisons. And then talking about circumcision is the primary motif coming out of the Jewish context. He said that that itself has really in this text, these 12 verses that we just had read for us, that has tremendously severe consequences. And it's very difficult to know exactly why Paul is so bold 
And I think that one of the reasons that Paul's so bold is actually not just something that came out of the first century. It's something that we've gotten messed up really in every generation since. It's that freedom isn't what we think freedom is. Listen to the way Paul describes it in the beginning. He says, chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, if you took chapter 5, verse 1, and completely let it sit on its own merits, you might think that anything that restricts any activity in any way is therefore a burdensome yoke that is enslaving people. And in fact, that's really the way that our society tends to speak. Keith mentioned the, the study that we're going through in Momentum, right? Questioning the concept of whether truly reinventing yourself according to your own standards leads to a, a free and, and a good and a loving society. That's, that's what's being pumped at us. But if we don't just have to take shots at like, you know, our current day. I graduated in 1990 and... I don't think that the Supreme Court was necessarily like the representation of what would have been the equivalent of social media back in my day. But here's a statement from the Supreme Court in 1992. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now, rather than portraying this was a minority opinion that was written by one particular justice. But rather than representing the entirety of the, the Supreme Court at that time, this justice was actually representing what has become the dominant motif of our day. To tell someone they're free and to try and define life for them in any way has become more than just restrictive. It's, it's been called oppressive today. And so it might be easy because of the air that we breathe to think that chapter 5 verse 1 is just backing up that idea. That what we get to do because we are now free is to do whatever we want to do. The problem is in the biblical record, anytime people have gone to do whatever they wanted to do, it's really just led to a cesspool of sin and problems and just plaguing uh, groups and churches kind of all over the place. The solution, though, might not be immediately apparent because for four chapters, Paul has said to us, the law, particularly the way that the law has been presented to you since I left, it feels like something that is enslaving and binding you and making you rank each other and judge each other. And it's really not helping you at all. But if you're a rule-following kind of person, as really everybody in some sense ought to be, you might be thinking, wait a sec, Paul, we have Jesus who came to Jews. We have Jesus who obeyed the law. We have Jesus who uh, subjected himself to a rhythm of rest and feasts and celebrations. We have a Jesus who remembered everything that God did in the Old Testament. We're saying Jesus is the Messiah come to lead a new people as the example of what a human could be and trying to remake people into his image so we could all be more like God. And you're telling me the law doesn't matter? Well, then if we, if we preach the gospel to these pagans... So these people have been living for themselves and in a world that's totally marked by their love of money and their love of sex and all these other things. People who just do whatever they want. How are we going to change them if we don't give them the rules? 
That's really what ought to dominate our thought right now. If for four chapters we've been saying it's not the rules and the love of rules that actually makes us more like God, what does? What is it that's actually going to transform a human heart that's not like God to someone who is more like God? What will do that? That's going to be the answer Paul attempts to get at in chapters 5 and 6. So if you've been kind of wondering that for a while, like, okay, I get everything you're saying about the danger of the law, and Paul reinforces that it's dangerous here. In fact, he makes very dramatic statements in these 12 verses about how dangerous it is. The question that we need to be asking ourselves as we're wrapping up the book of Galatians, so we're kind of rounding the turn and coming towards the home stretch in these last two chapters is, what's going to change us? You, you know through the process of either being parented or parenting that rules don't by themselves, but they're still helpful. It's, it's just that we want to parent and we wanted to have been raised in such a way that our hearts were drawn into a bigger vision of what it meant to be a family than just a rule-following family. And a church kind of, I think, has that same desire. We and God's family have that same desire. And so if that's been bugging you for a bit, well, good. Because that's the question that I think Paul's really set us up for. So what we want to take a look at today is really this question of the, the big picture that Paul is seeing, the dramatic way that Paul is, is preaching, and then the answer that it was interesting. Brad and I have been talking a little bit because I'm preaching this week, Brad's preaching the next, and then I've got the one after that. And we were just talking a little bit about like, okay, I'm, I'm taking this word, you're taking that word. And he's like, yeah, but I'm, then you're preaching after me and it's really hard not to preach your passage whenever I'm going to preach the passage. And I'm like, I know, trust me, I'm leaving it right here going like, okay, next week Brad's going to take the baton and then Brad next week is going to. So if you're trying to get the feel for it, you really don't have to be limited to just reading the verses that we're on right now, all right? You can read chapters five and six through. It'll take you like five minutes to do it and you'll get a teaser for where Paul's going. We're going to take that slowly, and I want us to appreciate the, the drama that Paul uses as he's kind of setting things up, but it's going to really lead us with a couple questions, and, and I hope they're inviting questions that launch us into these next couple weeks, but let's look at the big picture first, because Paul really does see the big picture with great clarity. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, this freedom that Christ has purchased for you has set you free for would mean that I want you to do two things. I want you to stand firm and I want you to not submit. I want you to stand firm in this freedom and I want you to not submit to the slavery, the yoke of slavery that ultimately is going to be laid upon you. Now, this language that Paul's using, he doesn't always borrow from the bigger picture context, but let's just remember the bigger picture context of the book of Galatians for a second. We haven't reviewed it in a while. Paul was down in the Jerusalem area, was working as a, a Pharisee to persecute this new sect of Jews that he really felt needed to be squashed. And so in the process of that, God interrupted his life, blinded him. Who knows, maybe in that blinding of him, so damaged his eyes that he was weak for the rest of his days. Kind of speculative, but interesting. And in the process of that, Paul's life was entirely changed because he realized the people he was persecuting were actually the Jesus who was God. And this 
persecution he was doing was not for God. It was of God that changed everything about him. And anybody who would have normally been in Paul's case would have immediately gone back to, to uh, the Jerusalem saints, gotten to know them, been instructed by them, been licensed from them, and then taught based on their authority. Paul reminded us in the beginning of this book that's not at all what he did. In fact, he spent way more time away from the people in Jerusalem than he did with them. And the message, the, the message and the mission that God gave to Paul was to take the, the gospel, to suffer for the taking of the gospel, not just to Jewish people, but to Gentiles. And in doing that, Paul left where he was, not just in Jerusalem, but then in Antioch. He grabbed a few people because in a prayer meeting, let's, like the one I think that we're going to be having here on Wednesday, God set these two apart and commissioned them to go. So Paul, with his friend Barnabas, irreplaceable in that church, left and then went to these churches in the region of what we would think of as Turkey. It's now called Galatia in this context. These churches that he visited heard this message about Jesus, some familiar with the message of Judaism, some unfamiliar with the message in the story of the Old Testament, but they were captivated by it. And in four different towns that we really know of from the book of Acts, four different churches emerged. Paul went back and revisited them, set up kind of the structure of churches in those places, set up elders so that they could be led after he was gone. But when he left, others slipped in. And these others began to tell the Galatians all this stuff that we've been hearing about. Well, it became such an issue that the, the saints in Jerusalem had a council, one of their first meetings. And out of this first meeting, uh, a, a real debate arose. And you'd think that on one side of it, particularly because of what we read in Galatians, that Peter might be on one side and Paul on the other. But that's not actually the way it went down at all. Peter, you see, had had a vision, a vision about food, food that represented people, all of the food was unclean. And every time the, 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 the food came down from heaven, God said, hey, I want you to eat this. And Peter said, no, I'm not supposed to eat that. I'm a Jew and that's unclean. And God said, no, 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 I've cleaned it. So you're good. Right after the vision was over, an unclean Gentile arrives at Peter's house and says, we want to hear about this Jesus. And so he goes to the unclean, enters into the house of uncleanness and recognizes, oh, this wasn't just about food. This was about people. This is about what God's doing in the world. So Peter was actually a backer of what Paul was doing, going to different places and telling other people who weren't Jewish that you can come to Jesus without being Jewish. But the debate is, can you? Can you really do that? Listen to Peter's testimony during that council. Here's what Peter said. Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples? Sound familiar? I think that deliberately in this letter, Paul is quoting Peter from this big council, using Peter's words and using, in some senses as well, Peter's authority. 
which is odd because he just kind of ripped Peter a little while ago. But he's using Peter's words here and saying, why are Peter's words, which were, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So if you hear Peter's words to the whole council, the letter that they then sent to these Galatian believers, Paul is now writing around that whole energy. The chronology of it's kind of hard to get at. Nobody totally agrees. But if we just took the idea that Paul left, they had a council, they wrote a letter, they got that letter. Either Paul is going with that letter, visiting them, and then afterwards writes this, or this red letter comes kind of in the context. You get the fact that it's all influencing everything else, right? So the letter from the Jerusalem council, the letter from Paul, it's, it's using the exact same language that Peter was arguing from. That laying a burden that the Jews, with every one of their advantages, couldn't keep because to obey some of the law means you have to obey all of it. And Peter was saying, we couldn't do it. Paul's been saying for a while, nobody could do it. So why are we trying to ask them to do it? They don't even have the shared history that we have. Why would we do this? So because of that great danger, I need you to do two things. I need you to stand firm and I need you to be unsubmissive. Now, not generally unsubmissive, but to this, you need to resist this heavily. This is militant kind of language, isn't it? Hold the line and resist. When this force hits your churches, I need you to send out your best. And I need you all to form up a wall, stand firm, don't be flanked. Resist, let this not enter. That's the big picture, according to Paul. But more than just a big picture, Paul gets very dramatic. He makes three very dramatic statements right here in verses two through four. Listen to them again. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Dramatic statement number one. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Verse four, you are severed from Christ. You would, who would be justified by the law. That was number two. Here comes number three. You have fallen away from grace. I remember watching a debate a while back on uh, different perspectives on the return of Christ. And one man was challenging too. He was amillennial. They were premillennial. And he was challenging them. And he said, listen, here's, here's the thing. If I accept your perspective on those passages, I have to abandon inerrancy. And John Piper, who was one of them and, and another professor, he threw up his hands. It's like, oh my goodness, Sam, why are you talking that way? It's, it's not that dramatic. And as I was listening to it, I was like, oh, that was a little bit of a dramatic statement there. I don't know if you've ever been in a moment with somebody who has this tendency to kind of talk this way, right? Something, you know, a little kid. This is the worst meal I've ever eaten. Or somebody who's really young, I'm starving to death, right? It's, it's good that none of that tendency ever exists as people grow up and mature. All of us lose the ability to overspeak. 
Paul, I don't think, is being immature in making these kinds of statements. Because if we don't give him the freedom to make these three statements, then we're going to have trouble with the way that this text ends, right? Listen to Paul, the drama queen, as he goes from seven on. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You're ruining all of Christianity. I have confidence in the Lord you'll take no other view and that the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. You can only see him was spitting the words out of his mouth. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And I wish that those who'd unsaddle you would just go all the way. Just do the deed, but go everywhere. Just emasculate yourselves. <sighs> is Paul overstating his case? We're going to let 7 through 12 sit on their own, and I'll let you look up the commentaries a little bit more on that if you'd prefer. Let's just deal with what Paul said in verses 2, 3, and 4. The first thing he said, right, if we went back to 2, is that Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you place your confidence in getting circumcised, as a representation of the fact that you're good with God because you've obeyed the law. If that's where your confidence is, then there is no advantage to Jesus coming. That's a bold, dramatic statement. Maybe another way we could say that is to sort of form for ourselves a self-righteous creed. Here would be statement one in our self-righteous creed. I need no other confidence in life or in death than the track record of my goodness and obedience. You ever live that way? We have. That's why we could relate to chapters 1 through 4, right? We've ranked each other that way. We've felt smug for those reasons. We've felt condemned for those reasons. That's why we so often return to Romans chapter 8, isn't it? That we're not actually condemned because what Jesus did, because my own track record of goodness and obedience really doesn't create a ton of confidence unless all I have to do is weigh myself against you. <laughs> and then my attendance at church is better than yours and my self-righteous creed is upheld. Or if we don't like church attendance, because maybe I'm not, you know, so tardy. I'm a little bit more tardy or a little bit less, you know. I, I just need another standard that I can use. I don't have to use the whole law. I just use my strength, and I'm going to use my strength versus your obedience. Or maybe my intentions versus your actions. It doesn't really matter what I can do. As long as the light shines on me and the shadow falls on you, then we know where we rank, right? Because what I ultimately lead in this life is just not, it's like the two hunters chased by the bear, right? The bear emerges. The one guy reaches down to tie his shoes. He says, what are you doing? You don't have to, you can't outrun a bear. He's like, I don't have to outrun a bear. I just have to outrun you. That's the way we think sometimes, right? To be okay, I just need to not be in the back of the pack. I just need to be at the head of the pack because what God does when he views us and the way he views his kingdom is he's going to take the group of us and he's going to be like, well, you front runners get to come in. That's the way this works, right? The self-righteous creed in full force. Paul hears it and dramatically says, you, you're acting like Jesus didn't come. 
You're acting like Christ would be of no advantage. Confidence in Christ is of no advantage to the self-righteous soul. Or if, if you don't quite relate to that, let's go to his second most dramatic statement there in verses two through four. The one that was right there in four. You are severed from Christ. So maybe it's not your confidence in Christ, but it's your connection to Christ. Maybe the way that we would say it in our self-righteous creed is I need no other connections or partnership as I stand before God due to my own goodness and obedience. You ever hear people talking about the hypocrisy and the smugness in the church? What does that statement in and of itself say? I am neither a hypocrite nor smug like all those other Christians. Well, what does that statement do? It, one, it disconnects me from the church, but it also elevates me above it. Why don't you attend church? Well, because people in church hurt each other. Oh, you don't hurt people? Is that kind of the way you're trying to say that? You see the self-righteousness under the criticism? Is the church full of hypocrites? Oh my goodness, yes, you are. Is the Church full of hypocritic pastors? Yes, we are. Hopefully humble in that. Hopefully repenting of that. But guilty of that? Yeah, absolutely. We are sinners saved by grace. We are sinners being made into saints. We're not there. Praise God, we're not where we were. But we're not there. And when I step apart and I say I need no connection to Christ or to his people because I stand above them and I judge them, oh, that's just, that's just smacks of this. I need no other connections or I need no other partnership as I stand before God due to my own goodness and my own obedience, my dissimilarity with all those other, you know, tainted Christians. What am I doing? I'm saying that my connection to Christ is of no advantage. To use Paul's words, you are severed from Christ. You who would create a standard that you think God uses to evaluate other people and that elevates you above them. Paul's being pretty dramatic here. But do you see why? Do you feel why? This self-righteous creed can't exist in a church that's actually trying to promote the gospel. This self-righteous creed can exist in a church that's trying to promote the church. This self-righteous creed can exist in parents that are trying to promote themselves or in Christians who are trying to make other people follow their examples or trying to win folks to us. But I, I, I remember preaching at a, at a church um, in the sticks of Pennsylvania a long while ago and I got to their pulpit and it just said on the front, the top of the pulpit, sir, we would like to see Jesus. I've always thought of that. It's a great line. It's taken out of the Gospels. Some, some folks who don't know Jesus are trying to get to Jesus. And they just come to one of the disciples and say, sir, we would like to see Jesus. And I looked down and I looked up and I realized, oh, that's, that's who these people want to see. You don't care about me. In fact, if we should put something on the front of the pulpit, it would just be, I am not the Christ. Right? Like, <laughs> sir, we've come to see Jesus. It ain't me. But if I live according to these creeds, if I live according to the fact that I have no advantage because of my, my confidence in Christ or my connection to Christ, well then, 
Honestly, what Paul says at the very end of that isn't really all that dramatic. It's just obvious. You've fallen away from grace. You've just forgotten God's number one rule behind all the law in the whole Old Testament and why Jesus came and what's going to take you to the very end of everything. It's that grace is going to be the thing that's going to move you along. And so my third thing, if I was going to reject that, would just be to say I require no charity or mercy as a principle over each of my relationships, my relationship with God, my relationship with you. We don't need mercy. We don't need charity. We don't need any of that. Why? Because if we're falling away from grace, we're going to treat each other as we deserve. That's the way this is going to go. This self-righteous creed is garbage. It's toxic, stinking garbage. And so when we really unpack what Paul's saying in in verses 2 through 4, look, Paul, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept Christ or circumcision, sorry, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ. You would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. See, when we really unpack the creed underneath this, Paul's language about those who promote it ought to really just mutilate themselves doesn't feel quite as harsh. Because the number of churches and families and believers that have been destroyed by the tenets of the self-righteous creed is scary. And I know that because I feel my own tendency to do it. I hear in us our own tendency to go that way. So we gather week after week after week, not to celebrate us, but to celebrate him, not to promote our connection to each other or your connection to me or your connection to each other, but our connection to Christ because confidence in Christ is of advantage. Connection to Christ is of advantage. Continuing in grace is of an advantage. This is how we are going to be okay. And Paul is not being overly dramatic. This is not Paul saying, if I believe that, I got to abandon inerrancy. No, he's, he's just kind of boiling down the implications that people have been going for if they're going to accept the law as the standard for how we rank each other and how we get to God. See, the problem is, though, I set you up, right? I told you Paul's going to start talking about what's going to make a difference. And so far... We didn't talk about what's going to make a difference. We just talked about why it's so scary. And so it's kind of like, well, Darren, you said chapter 5 was going to be about different stuff than chapters 1 through 4. It is if we feel it. Because Paul gives us the nugget right in the middle of these 12 verses. It's right there in verse 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Yeah, okay, we got that. So what is it? It's faith working through love. Keyword, only. It is not also, it is only this. Deep, abiding trust in God that convinces me of two things. I'm loved. I can love. Deep abiding faith. A a belief that is so rooted in what God has reminded me of over and over and over again 
that I view this entire system not like a well, but like a spring. I see the way that God is working in the world, not as a debit card, but as an endless credit card. I hear this idea, not as a little cup, but as a hose. And it begins with this. I am loved. Jesus said the work that God requires is to believe the son. And so we must start by believing that I'm loved by God. Here's the hard thing, guys. The most significant people in your life aren't God. And so you've gotten pictures of God's love and you've gotten something else. And when we believers bump up against that in each other, that indoctrination that we've had towards our own merits and lack of merit disqualifying us from real love, it should hurt. We should hurt together. That when we're talking with people and we feel like, man, something's wrong. Are you okay? And if we, we press that conversation deep enough, we get to a spot where somebody really just feels like they didn't matter in life because people who should have told them that they matter treated them like they didn't. And we, we should be sad about that. Because every one of our relationships, whether it's kind of core family or it's, it's sort of, you know, casual we're supposed to remind people in whatever way we're called to do that, that God loves them. That they're, they're just deeply loved by God. And, and what we hear in the story of the Bible is something that should back up faith that tells us all, I am loved by God. Here's the problem. Our world has cheapened that to something that you know isn't quite right. It's just, it's so close, right? It's just half-baked. Our world has said, you're supposed to love yourself, right? Stare into your own eyes in the morning and 10 times look at yourself in the mirror and say, I love you. I love you. I literally read that this week online. Brush your teeth with your left hand. Stare yourself in the face in the mirror and tell yourself, I love you. I love you. And don't stop until 10 times is over. I, I don't like looking at myself in the mirror all that much, right? So, but here's, a, even if that worked, even if it rewired something in our brain, even if it tried to convince us, you know you're not very good at loving other people, so why should you be terribly convinced that you love yourself? I don't believe that self-love is the thing that's really going to reset the whole clock on how we, uh, we relate to the world. I do believe, though, that if we read these words, only faith working through love, and we started with the part of that relationship that says, I believe that I am deeply loved by the God of the universe who was free to treat me however he wanted to and instead loved me. So that if I could stare into my own soul and hear the words, God loves you enough, something would click. And I'd say, wait a second, I don't have to go through life hoarding all my resources. 
because God loves me. He provides for me. Wait a second. I don't have to go through life justifying all my past mistakes because the one who sees me and knows everything about my past loves me? I don't have to believe everything that was told to me based on neglect or abuse or based on mistakes or failures that other people, significant or insignificant, have made because at the end of the day, God actually loves me. Like if I, if I really believed that, then just like Paul, all the shackle or all the scales that have been kind of over my eyes, they just fall off. The, 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 the scales that have caused me to blindly hoard all of my own resources, right, for myself, because I feel like God is just very, very limited. Remember the parable of the talents? The man invests into his servants, goes away. The one comes back and says, you gave me this, I made this. The other says, I gave you this, you gave me this, and I made this. Oh, very good, enter into my joy, enter into my joy. What does the one guy say? What does the one guy say that fundamentally made the difference? I knew you were harsh. I knew you were uncaring. I knew you were unjust. That's what I knew about you. And if we know that about God, you're not loved. But that's not how we know God, is it? We don't know God based on the limits of other people's mistakes. We know God based on the truth of his word. We know God based on the life of Jesus. We know a God who looks at us and says, everything is at my disposal. And I'm giving you grace upon grace upon grace. I need you to forgive other people. I, I don't know that I can yeah, let me start somewhere else other than what you can do. Let me start with how deeply you've been forgiven. When you go into a river, do you worry about where all the water's coming from? How much is getting past you as it goes by? No, because you realize a river is just so different than a pond. It's not seemingly contained. It's not seemingly capable of being measured so that when Paul's talking to the Ephesian church, he says, here's my prayer for you. I pray that you, when you survey the love of God, would know the lack of height, the lack of depth and breadth and width, the lack, the incapability of the love of God being measured in your life. I would love you to go out and feel like you're in an ocean of love, in the universe of love. Try to measure all that because as high as the heavens are from the earth, that's the measure of the love of God for you. Uh, so I pray that you would know how incomprehensible the love of God is. But, okay, wait, Paul, that didn't work for me. You want me to know what's unknowable. No, I want you to know that it's unknowable. I want you to measure its immeasurability. I want you to feel love from God that way. That's faith. The rest of it is self-righteous toxin. But faith like that tells me I'm so deeply loved that I'm okay. I'm like, really okay so I can I can forgive I don't have to hoard my time I don't have to hoard my resources I don't have to 
walk through life like the stereotypical story of kids who've come out of orphanages who arrive in homes where they're starting to take food and hide it and keep it whenever they leave the table because the idea is there's only so much and I got to get what I get. But over time, that hoarding stops because we realize we're in a family that's just very different than that. So faith that works, one, believes that I'm loved, but two, it believes that I can love. That's why we read from Deuteronomy 10 and from Psalm 1. Because a tree that's planted next to a stream delights in the law, is blessed by the law, is aware that whatever God was doing through the law, it was an endless source of life for me. It wasn't something that should have had me all root bound and contained up on myself. So that we could hear in Deuteronomy 10, he loves, so you love. Even to somebody who would be a sojourner and it wouldn't seem like they belong among you. He loves them, so you can love them. He forgave, so you can forgive. He gives, so we can give. Faith that believes I'm loved and faith that believes I can love. So what I want to do in handing the baton over to Brad is I want you to believe this. Do you believe you are and do you believe you can? If you don't, next week won't make a lick of difference. It'll feel like guilt. It'll feel like a way that we have another burden that's been placed in our backpack. But if we believe that God has not given us limited resources and is stealing them away from us every time somebody comes who needs something from us, but that God has given us endless resources and asking us to share the way that he shared with us, well then, when I have opportunities to love other people, it's going to feel like a, I'm in the middle of a river. And it's, just, it's hitting me and I'm giving it and it's hitting me and I'm giving it. And this is, this is kind of fun. I got, it's a little overwhelming, but it's kind of fun. Because there's something about being in this river of grace that I just believe is best for me. If I am loved, I can love. That's faith. Working through love. So Paul could say, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before God, our Father, sorry, sorry, before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor and love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you pause there, you'd be like, oh man, what a burden. I'm so grateful for you. Why? Because you're doing all the right stuff. No, he doesn't end there. I'm so grateful for you because I see all this stuff flowing out from you in the river. Why? For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you. There's just so much flowing into you, and I see it flowing out. I'm so thankful for that. Or Jeremiah 17, stealing from Psalm 1 itself. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream, who does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. As the worship team comes, 
and is going to lead us in, in our time of singing here at the end. What I want us to do is to pause a bit and ask, Lord, uh, could you search me? Could you know me? And the question I want you to ask is, Lord, what do I need in order to believe that I'm loved by you? And Lord, what do I need so that I believe I can love like you? What is it that I'm missing right now? And then just be quiet and let the Lord kind of reveal to you what has plagued you for a while so that you can be free. Because it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Let's take a little time to reflect. And then when Phil thinks it's, it's time, he'll lead us in song.